support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. Welcome to At Length, conversations with UW Graduate School lecturers on art, politics, science, culture, and much more. I'm Steve Scheer. One of the benefits that accrue to the powerful in any society is they get to decide when to listen and when to remain willfully ignorant. This is very true for white America. The ongoing debate over the offensive name of an NFL team is one example. What if Indian casinos were named with the same level of nonchalant disrespect? The honky casino, the buffalo killer room, the Tulalip pale face. Vine Deloria Jr. wrote a book in the 70s, We Talk, You Listen. Forty years on, Professor Chinina Lomawaima has a UW public lecture titled, More Than Mascots, Less Than Citizens, American Indians Talk, Why Isn't the U.S. Listening? Thank you for talking to me. Oh, thank you. I heard you say that uh, books by Native scholars don't often show up in airports. And you said because, I guess besides Sherman Alexie and Louise Erdrich, uh, don't follow the rules. You quoted Don Hewitt, the 60 mm-hmm. Minutes producer. He said uh, Indians were lousy television because they talk too slow, they talk too long, and they just have too, it's just too complex it's a story for Americans. too complicated. <laughs> yes. How do we make it simple for folks? I think or, that's, or do we bother? I, well, I think that's, there's a double challenge there, which is, if you make it simple, which it always comes down to land and rights to land, and that's both simple and threatening, I think. It's pretty daunting for the U.S. to come to grips with the uncomfortable facts. Um, this country is built on Indian land. And second uncomfortable fact, the ways it was re- acquired um, carry an odor about them often. And not so, very long ago. And not very long ago. This is this is not long ago at all, in fact. So those are simple truths, perhaps, but also very, very challenging, um, even perhaps um, seeming dangerous or threatening. So I think that's the challenge. It's not the only one. It's certainly not the only challenge um, that the U.S. has to, I think, face up to to become a, a truly inclusive and, and empowered democracy. Um, I think the status of African Americans, uh, as the whole Black Lives Matter movement has shown so dramatically in the last year, is still something the U.S. is grappling with deeply. Lots of issues of race and gender and so on. But I think that essential, fundamental reality of this country was built on Indian lands, and there are still these inherently sovereign Native nations to be dealt with. That's a tough one. I thought that one of the more telling moments in the Oregon Malheur standoff was when somebody asked uh, uh, Eamon Bundy about native lands and the fact that these were Paiute lands. And he blinked like a deer in the headlights, and then he said something to the effect that, well, yeah, um, I support that. They're also trying to get out from under the yoke of the federal government. Well, he didn't use yoke. but I thought that was both willfully ignorant, but a truth that a lot of people all of a sudden said, hey, yeah, why are we talking to these guys? <laughs> yes, um, willfully ignorant and perversely insightful. 
I loved the response of the uh, Burns Paiute tribal chairwoman um, because the reality is the uh, Burns Paiute negotiated a treaty with the U.S. in 1868, which the U.S. Senate never ratified. So they have never legally ceded title to their lands to the U.S. And her response on hearing Mr. Bundy's comment was to say how busy, busy, busy she was getting ready to write the thank you letter for when they got all their lands back. Also, if you look at a map, uh, a few a few um, journalists entities went back and they put they and they found maps and they, there was one wonderful map of like here's here's the Northwest uh, in in the 1830s or 1800s. Who, you know, Indian land, which mm -hmm. was the entire, and then you click through and click through until you finally see that at one point, the Malheur was part of the reservation, and the federal government, with the with the with the be following up on the ranchers, mm -hmm. uh, uh, kicked them off that land, and put them in, in, into even a smaller parcel of land, so that that reservation, I mean that uh, refuge itself. Mm -hmm. it, uh, still is controversial, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's part of the, uh, as, as Mr. Bundy perversely, insightfully uh, figured out there, uh, there are some downsides to being under federal control. That's one of them. The feds take and exercise the right to transfer lands from one arena of federal jurisdiction, Bureau of Indian Affairs, to... Bureau of Land Management, National Parks, National Forest Service, bombing ranges, wildlife refuges. Um, that land is just seen as theirs to do with as they wish. Right. I, I have spent a lot of time down there at the Malheur and at the Steens, out into the desert. Uh, an incredible um, hot springs, a, nat a natural hot springs that's down in there. Uh, all those places that... Uh, that I take for granted as mine because I'm an American citizen and these are called BLM lands mm -hmm. or a wildlife refuge. There's a layer missing in my understanding of whose land that is. Mm -hmm. When we look at these things, there is fundamentally another question. What is U.S. citizenship for American Indians? What does the Indian citizenship, citizenship mean to America? What is an Indian citizen to the United States of America? Well, of course, originally the Constitution as a social contract excluded us, excluded Native nations as inherent sovereigns. Most, uh, the vast majority of Native individuals were not included. And in fact, the, the U.S. Constitution says remarkably little about citizenship in any way, shape, or form. But um, a few years after the Constitution, after Civil War, um, there was this moment in American life when citizenship was hotly, hotly debated. That's an era that turn from the 19th to the 20th century I've been really interested in. And all kinds of things are happening then. Uh, the fight for women's suffrage and all kinds of immigration laws and also this very vigorous debate about extending or granting or gifting, depending on how it was phrased, U.S. citizenship to American Indians. And in 1924, Congress passed a law, passed an act, the American Indian Citizenship Act which interestingly enough, I mean, it, it innovated in that it extended birthright citizenship to all Native people born within U.S. boundaries, but it also preserved tribal property. And when I first read that act, I was, I was really kind of astonished and curious 
why at the culmination of this era when if you believe the feds, everything was about assimilating native people, and then they pass this act and they preserve tribal property, which seemed to me quite odd to say the least. And that's really what got me interested in this topic. The, I guess the conclusion I've come to is that what Congress did in 1924 was actually not to welcome American Indians into a full citizenship, but they created a special status. How'd they do that? I call it ward citizen. Ward citizen. Ward citizen, because we had been wards. At least the federal government considered us wards. They treated us as wards. It was enshrined in federal law that we were wards. And then people are fighting for U.S. citizenship. But when Congress passed that act, they did so in the aftermath of two Supreme Court decisions, one in 1913, one in 1915, that said clearly and unequivocally, Indians are a special case. Citizenship for Indians does not impair the power of Congress over these dependent peoples. It does not. It's not in the words of the second case, citizenship for Indians is not incompatible with wardship. So all those federal powers over Native people as wards continued after the 1924 Act. It didn't really make that much difference in Indian country. So there's a, there's a mixture of uh, uh, paternalism yeah. and power. What's, what, what's, what's Congress... Those, those in Congress who knew what they were doing when they slipped that in, what, what are they trying to maintain? Here's the theory that I'm working on, which is that it always comes down to land. It comes down to justification for land. Now, if Native people can be preserved as incompetent wards, all the legal implications of what wardship is, you've got a good argument then that the kind of rights that the U.S. has asserted over its claims to native lands, which, which actually follow a long tradition of, of earlier European claims. We're a Christian nation. We're progressive. We um, can utilize lands more effectively and efficiently because we're settled through agriculture, later industry, versus native peoples whom the stereotypes have painted in very particular ways. You know, we roamed the wilderness, we never settled, we never had agriculture, all that. All I think all of that is, is like distilled down into this notion of wardship. If Indians persist as incompetent wards, it's like an enduring reminder that the settlers were right. They really can make better use of the land. They really have a right to claim that. So I think there's this underlying ideology that powers that relationship. And, and how does that power and that definition, my definition, the, con, you know, the federal government's definition versus Native people's own definition, how does that play into, so let's go back to, to the NFL football team <laughs> or, or you know, any of those mascots that we see all over professional mm-hmm. and also you know, high schools all around. What's, what's going on there? Well, I think what Native people have, have clung to and fought for tooth and nail at the turn of the last century to try and escape the abuses of wardship 
to continue to assert inherent sovereignty, to continue to assert a right to self-determination, the right to be fully modern, dynamic participants in U.S. life as inherent sovereigns, as distinctive peoples. That's a right demanding to be heard. That's like, we have a voice, we want to be heard. And I think that's in, in direct, I mean, it's more than tension, it's almost outright battle with the whole notion of the mascots, because the mascots really distill the stereotypic power, and stereotypes carry power in this world. They do work. Um, and in fact, the foremost scholar of analyzing stereotypes, particularly sports mascots, is right here at University of Washington on the faculty, Dr. Uh, Stephanie Freiberg, who's from Tulela. Brilliant, brilliant analysis of this phenomenon she's documented called stereotype lift, where exposing uh, white college students to those visual primes, the pictures of Chief Wahoo and so on and so forth, and then administering tests of self-esteem, white students, their self-esteem scores go up. That's called stereotype lift. The stereotypes are doing work in this world. I see that stereotype as a white man, and deep in some base part of my brain, I know that I am part of a conquering people. Wow. That's, that's She's depressing. brilliant. She's <laughs> done brilliant work. I mean, that, that work has been done in reverse, of course, too, right? I have read of uh, you come in as a woman, three women come in who are scholars in math, and before we start, I, I say just offhandedly, you know, well, you know, women have trouble with math. <laughs> and that, that stereotype works to depress their scores. And they've done these tests time and time again mm -hmm. with women, with, with African Americans, with, with other, with Native Americans. It always seems to be that we think it's not working on us, but it is. Dan, Dan Snyder, is that his, of, the, mm -hmm. of, the, of the Washington team? He, also, he argues that he has as much right to that definition of that mascot as anybody else is that a, is that a power play on his part I think so and I think it's also part of this deeply seated connection that native people are seen as equivalent to the land so power over native people means power and rights to land I think I that's not always on the surface of things it may not be foremost in Dan Snyder's mind but I, I think there's a, a structure that's been built over centuries now where that connection is sedimented. And I mean, it comes out in really romanticized ways. Sometimes the kind of stereotypes about Native people as being natural stewards and conservators of the environment, in fact, being the same as or one with nature um, and, and that is tied up very tightly with that stereotype that Native people never managed the landscape. They never changed it in material ways. And we know that's not true. There's abundant evidence of all, you know, really sophisticated landscape management resource uh, tools and strategies. Many of those have been well documented in the Pacific Northwest around fisheries and the, you know, this millennial long relationship between human beings and salmon people, for example. So, you know, there's a native reality there that people are, in a sense, kind of hooking into, but then it's being really flattened and really simplified uh, to serve other purposes. That's a fascinating idea that the, that the, um, the stereotypes of people are 
are used as a way to to uh, prop up the structures of 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 resource control and domination. Mm -hmm. But we see that in slavery. We see that across, don't we? Um, or ch you, you made me think of Chaco Canyon when I went to Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, right? Which is all about agriculture and control of water and using using um, a star map that they that the uh, that the little head class, the cast, would would climb up to the top of this stone spire and read the heavens as a way to understand what was going to happen with mm. with um, with their agriculture. That's all very sophisticated ways of a very settled community. So when people look at native tribes asserting their rights as casino owners, building casinos and getting wealthy with that, and then using that wealth to uplift their entire community. What's the fear, do you think, that arises from white culture, from state government, from federal government? Well, once there again, is there is there there, I, think that, I think you're right. I think that's, I think that's precisely true. And, and we can actually turn to another brilliant University of Washington faculty, Alexandra Harmon, uh, who a few years ago wrote a great book called Simply Rich Indians, in which she documents over the last couple of centuries how threatening U.S. society has found rich Indians, wealthy Indians, to be. Um, and in fact, if I'm remembering correctly, when she was first planning that book, she didn't even plan to go up through contemporary gaming. She had so many other examples to work with, um, but she, of course she had to go there. I think it goes back to this notion of preserving the idea of natives as incompetent wards. And that's part of proving incompetence in a legal uh, framework, is incompetence to handle your own affairs, incompetence to you know control your own bank account, for example, your own assets. So I think part of the stereotype about natives is oh you know relics of the past and challenged by modernity. I mean we're supposed to be traumatized by walking in two worlds and all that stuff. Evidence that we are, in fact, savvy politically or f successful financially, wealthy even, I think that's actually tremendously threatening to that stereotypical notion of, well, gosh, if natives are incompetent wards, then that justifies U.S. claims to land. And if natives are not incompetent wards, it's scary, I think. It, it threatens that sense of national... Um, rightness or even righteousness certainly claims to territory it always comes down to land this is my essential argument well it's it, it's it's because there is at the base of of the treaties sovereign nations so two questions what what going forward in your best of all possible worlds what does a relationship between um, the Hopi and and the United States government or the New Mexico government or I forget what county that is in New Mexico. <laughs> What's the relationship going forward? Well, I think in many respects, Native nations have been figuring that out and working on that and advocating that for, uh, gosh, decades at least, if not a couple centuries. Um, and to some degree, I think progress has been made. I mean, I think the... Uh, the kind of salmon management 
mechanisms that we see in the Pacific Northwest, my gosh, they were certainly hard fought for. There were, those were hard fought battles. Um, what led up to U.S. v. Washington or the Bolt decision, but um, it, I think we can see progress for processes such as co-management, collaborative governance. Um, the danger, I think, is it's often seen as so threatening, especially by the states, especially by local municipalities, even more threatening than is seen, I think, by the federal government as a little more practice with this. But I think we have to, I think one strategy is in educating people, if there's anything I've learned over the years, you have to begin with what people know. I mean, all human beings learn by building on what we already know, what we might be familiar with. And then if you can use examples to open that up the range of possibilities, but connecting to something familiar and then moving to something unfamiliar. I think actually there's um, structures in U.S. government governance, such as the system of federalism. Now there's an unquestioned, taken for granted relationship between, in a sense, really different sovereigns, the federal government, the state governments, the people. Now, certainly there's been uh, tensions there. There's been conflict there. I mean, state powers versus federal powers, that's, a, that's an ongoing uh, struggle that dates back to the beginning of the country, but people don't question that relationship the way that they do the status of native nations as inherent sovereigns. It's like, oh, how can you have that? Uh, there was even a comment at the, in the early 20th century from a federal government agent who talked about, we can't have native nations insisted, as it were, in the body of the nation. I mean, native nations seen as actual disease organisms or something. Oh, oh, oh insisted. Insisted. C-Y-S-T-E-D. Yeah, insisted. I mean, states aren't necessarily viewed like that. So how do you build on an idea like, oh, there's state powers and there's federal powers and they have to work together in a respectful, hopefully, relationship. Except the federal government supersedes state power whenever, almost whenever <laughs> it wants to, right? Well, I think that's been, that's been back and forth over the years. It does go back and forth. It has gone back and forth. Now, I, I do not think that Native Nations belong under federal powers in the same way that the states were because, hey, we were outside the Constitution and the Constitution set up that arrangement of federal and state powers. Native nations are prior to that and outside that. But I do think it gives a platform for imagining a new set of relationships that could be mutually respectful and collaborative and cooperative. But I can also see there's a lot of obstacles to get to that point. There's not much way out of that other than to go forward, though, in building conversation, building dialogue. And asserting, asserting rights. And I think that's a process that uh, Native communities have been in those trenches now for quite a long time and are going to continue to be there, are just going to continue to fight. So what does, what does it mean to Native citizens to be U.S. citizens as well was the other half of that question you asked. I think that for many Native people, there's a, um, a concept of, of what some folks have called a dual or even a layered citizenship. And, and maybe other Americans can think of the fact that, oh, I 
live in Seattle and I participate in government here. I vote and I pay taxes and I'm a citizen of the state of Washington. I'm also a citizen of the U.S. We already have a sense of layers. Uh, and I think for Native people, that's grounded in their, uh, their citizenship in a particular tribe or nation. That's complicated today by the fact that there are many Native people um, who, who are not sole citizens. In other words, they have a, div uh, a mixed background. Their mom might be from Tulalip. Their dad might be from Isleta in New Mexico. So that gets complicated very quickly, but I think for most people that identity rests in Native identity. That's, that's foundational. But they see themselves as U.S. citizens. You just reminded me that there are places where tribes, recognized tribes and unrecognized uh, tribes, yes. are dealing with who gets to call themselves a member of this nation. And, and then we start dealing with all sorts of questions of percentage of relationships, and it starts getting very touchy for it's a lot a, of people. It's a very fraught question right now. It has been for a long time. Is it so fraught that, it, it, that we need to... Well, I mean, this is where you start questioning, right, what is a nation, what is a tribe? Because somebody says, yeah, it was just my great-grandfather, but I am part of this nation. And sometimes that's about resources again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's about personal pride. I think many understand one of the prerogatives of nationhood to be the right to define your citizenry. Um, and certainly that's, that's been adhered to uh, in this country in that Native nations have been understood to be the ones that have the right to define who their members, who their citizens are. And by and large, the federal government, there's some exceptions, but by and large, the federal government has, has mostly respected that. So this is a, f a fundamental issue of self-determination. This is really up to Native communities to decide. And many communities are, are grappling with that right now. And this is an ongoing process of constitutional reform, of, of re sometimes rethinking and rewriting the criteria for membership. Um, but you're right, it's, it's in a fraught environment, and partly that's because of access to various kinds of resources. Um, back to that wealth in some cases, although certainly you know, we know not all yeah. Native nations are gaming, uh, have gaming as an enterprise. Um, even so, uh, access to identity, to belonging in a community, really does rest with the community. There is more at stake there in very real ways than an individual saying, oh, I have an ancestor who was X, Y, or Z. And of course, in a larger scheme of things, that's a question that we are seeing play out among Muslim American communities uh, in, this, in this election, where where certain candidates are labeling people as others and not belonging, even though their roots run deep. Mm -hmm. And and so that's that's just we're back to where America decides who gets to be in and who gets to be out in the power. That's exactly right. And I think that's why looking at the case of American U.S. citizenship for American Indians and the way that's been defined, I think can be really illuminating. It can It can highlight things in a way that help us understand what's going on in the ways that in contemporary society exactly these processes of who's in, who's out, who's inside the lines of privilege, who's outside the lines of privilege are, are being once again hotly contested and uh, pushed around. You know, one thing you mentioned uh, about uh, controlling your own affairs. So for a long time, native citizens of America couldn't control their own bank accounts? Uh, that's true. 
that's true. So what was going on there? That's part of being a ward. That's part of being incompetent. So um, what were known as IIMs, individual Indian money accounts. Uh, that was one of the powers of a uh, federal reservation agent or superintendent um, right up through the early 20th century was to control those bank accounts. If people wanted to make a withdrawal, they had to get approval from their agent. So that, I mean, we're talking very real powers over people's lives, I think to a degree that perhaps many American citizens are just not even aware of what federal powers over individual Indians were like, particularly in the early 20th century. Did you have conversations with World War II veterans in your life growing up? My dad. Yeah. So and where did your dad serve? He was um, National Guard that was um, nationalized into service and to the Air Corps, what I think eventually became the Air Force, but it wasn't called that early on. So North Africa and flight, uh, flights over Italy. How did he deal with the the duality of his position? How did he deal with the fact that he was a Native American who had these, these, this, this ward <laughs> position put over him, and yet he was asked to, and vol maybe volunteered, but definitely wanted to serve to fight for the nation? And certainly many, I mean, there's, it's something that's, I think, well known, the, the over-representation of volunteerism in military service by Native people, I shoot right back to the U.S. Revolution, and up to the present day. My dad was uh, removed by order of the court from his mom when he was about eight, nine years old and placed in one of the off-reservation boarding schools. So that's where he grew up. And he was a really smart man. And that experience, I th you could say that institution developed in him what every institution of higher education aspires to, which were the arts and skills of critical thinking. He was a critical thinker par excellence. And it also led him to question authority. So my dad's perspective on World War II, especially you know, after the fact when I'm a young person growing up and when we're having these conversations, was perhaps a somewhat heretical view. His view was, you know, it wasn't as cut and dried, black and white, evil and good as people make it out to be after the fact. He questioned authority, and um, he'd been raised in this very military institution of a boarding school, so military structures were, were not new to him. But he was one to question things, and he was one to talk back. I mean, he was very, very proud of his military service. Um, he survived a lot in his life, not the least of which was Shalako Indian School, which he ran away from at about age 15. He survived hobo camp life in the depths of the Great Depression. He survived being shot down over Yugoslavia in World War II. Um, but he was a critical thinker, and I take it as a great privilege. I f feel that I was homeschooled in many ways by my dad. You wrote the, uh, they called it Prairie Light, the story of Shilako Indian School, about that experience. And, and you write that those experiences, instead of looking at Native peoples of that generation as acquiescing to being stripped away from your family and the efforts to de-tribalize mm -hmm. people, 
those institutions that experience for the strong people instilled even a greater sense of their of their personhood. And you, you see those people as actually heroic mm-hmm. for living through that. Survivorship is inspirational. Survival is inspirational. And that's not to forget or ever slight that there were folks who did not survive that institution. And my dad's older brother, Bob, was one of those. Um, that's, the, that's the tragedy of it. Um, uh, but I guess I'm resistant to a, a national narrative that wants to cast Indians as eternal victims. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's part, you know, that's once again, that's part of how do you devalue these folks as survivors, as competent? Um, and that's not to slight the tragedies by any, by any means, but it, they cannot be submerged in this, in this narrative of victimhood. How have you pushed against that in your growing up? especially you had your father as an example but did you end up were there times when you were you could see that narrative coming over the show coming (laughs) over the horizon towards you boy that's a tough question I think sometimes that's the challenge it's hard to see these things sometimes at the level of your own life or just in everyday activities I I mean it's probably a trivial thing to say even but I think there was a certain stubbornness that I had, for example, in getting through graduate school that was all about, you know, the expectation is is that I'm not going to make it here. And so I, therefore, just have to, whatever it takes. Uh, Stanford University. I think there's been some stubbornness that's gotten me through some tough patches in in my professional life. Um, But you just, you want to do well not only as an as an individual but you know you're being taken to stand for something else and that's not necessarily always fair or maybe it's not even always happening but I, I think for many native people and others for example in higher ed institutions that's often at the back of our minds hmm. you were here at the university of washington and you were you were awarded a, a distinguished teacher why do you think you got that award? That's an award that comes through students' uh, response as well as your colleagues' response. That was a that was a tremendous honor and, and privilege. Um, well, I can say when I I came here as a brand new junior professor, I had really no training in teaching. That was the norm in those days. Graduate school didn't prepare you to teach, even though that's going to be your profession. And so here I'm thrown into this introductory class to American Indian Studies, 120 students, and at the end of the quarter, you get your student evaluations back, and it, you know, it shows the scores, and then it shows this little graph where you stand in the percentile of the university. If you're at the 50th percentile, half the instructors are rated higher than you, and half are rated lower, and I was in the zero percentile. <laughs> and that was like a wake-up call, right? Wait, you were rated as not... There was good- nobody worse than I was. <laughs> So really? I went to the okay. Professional Center for Research and Development and Teaching, and those people were fabulous. They helped me so much. But I read the student, you know, they also write comments. And one of the comments was, very even-handed presentation of biased material. 
Right. <laughs> you, were, like, you were teaching history? What were you teaching? Mm, just history uh-huh. and contemporary issues for Native peoples. Uh-huh. And I, I, first I laughed, and then I was like, what do they mean by that? And then another student comment was, be more dogmatic. Hmm. And I thought, do they know what that word means? But the two of those things together, actually, the more I thought about it, gave me some insight into what was going on, which was, I was so concerned not to be taken as politically correct that I was trying to show every side of every issue. I was trying to be even-handed. And it just, I think, kind of ended up confusing people. They really wanted and needed a little more structure, a little more direction. I think that's what the dogmatic thing was about. And so that was the beginning of me trying just really hard to get better at doing that. And apparently a few people thought that I did, so. Professor of Justice and Social Inquiry at the Center for Indian Education, School of Social Transformation, Arizona State University. Unpack that a little bit for me in terms of what we've been talking about, in terms of not being a victim, in terms of how people are Mm. moving forward in a world where opportunities and prejudice both still swirl around. So my, my, really my home unit at ASU is the School for Social Transformation. And I'm, I'm kind of split between these two entities within it. Center that sounds for, very politically correct. It, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> There's the Center for Indian Education, which is the longest standing center for Indian anything in any university in this country. It's like 53 years now. And then the other unit, the Program for Justice and Social Inquiry. Well, for me, it means... Tri- to continue to try to keep pushing the envelope from in, in these two important realms, which I, I think are central to, I, I see, I feel myself a public educator. I've, I've felt that since day one, and it's why I always love the challenge of the big introductory general education classes. It gives you a shot at 300, 350, mostly citizens of the United States of America the majority of them non-native. You've got a chance to push the envelope on what they know and what they understand and how they think about their nation and themselves and native people within all that. And it's also your chance to work with native students, of course. Sort of the Center for Indian Education side is more, it's also important to work with our native communities to support to also push the envelope on on pressing critical questions like how do you define your citizenry and why, but also to work with those communities and and that center has a, a distinguished history, uh, distinguished current director Brian Brayboy who's wonderful at working with native communities to develop educational opportunities, but also to take training for certification, for BA degrees, for PhD degrees, to Native communities. So I've had the great privilege to work with a cohort at Gila River to get Head Start in Language and Culture teachers through their BA degree, which is a necessary certification now, for example, to work in Head Start, to work with uh, Pueblo communities in New Mexico in a, in a brand new doctoral program that the center is, has innovated. So it's a, it's a balancing act, I guess you could say, in trying to work in those two arenas. What's your next book? Oh, well, it's it's about these questions of citizenship. 
I haven't quite decided on the title yet. I'm thinking about the land of the free, but I don't know yet. Oh, I like that. Professor Lamawaima, thank you. I, th I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening. You can find links, more information, and past interviews at our website. Search for At Length with Steve Share. The next speaker in the Equity and Difference speaker series will be Charles M. Payne. His talk is entitled Doing Race Better, Race and the Reform of Urban Schools. He'll also be talking with me at our podcast, At Length with Steve Share. Take care. Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. Mm -hmm.